and clap. Come on, come on, every campus, come on. Help me welcome or their executive pastor, Pastor Matt Anderson. Thanks, everybody. Love you guys. All right. Thank you. Thank you, church family. Um, it's always an honor to be here, and I want to thank our pastor and his wife for their leadership of our church, uh, myself, uh, my family, our campuses. We welcome you at Dallas, Louisville, Garland, Prosper, Global Family, online. Um, we're so grateful for our pastor and how he leads us faithfully. And um, I do have a good, good news update since we shot this video. Um, the individual who was at the airport was able to get out of Israel. So we praise God for her safe exit from there. Um, and our team has all been reunited. They're now on the island of Cyprus, and they're touring different lands of the Bible. So we thank God for their safety, and we do want to pause and pray for those in Israel because over the last 24, 24 hours, they've had um, over 2,000 missiles and rockets shot into their country. And um, many people in bunkers, hiding, scared for their lives. Hundreds of people have had their lives taken away from them. So let's pause and pray right now for the safety of those in Israel right now. Heavenly Father, we, um, we first give you thanks for how good you are. That no matter what happens, you're still good, God. We celebrate um, that the individual with our group is out safely. God, we, we don't take that for granted. We thank you that she is out of harm's way, God. And we pray right now for those who are in Israel. Those who are literally fearing for their lives right now. God, we pray for their safety. We pray that they can have peace. We pray that they can have a hope that's rooted in you. God, we know you're in control, and we pray for peace um, in this situation between Israel and Palestine. God, will you help um, bring peace right now, Father? We, um, even in the midst of their turmoil, and God, many of us in this house today have turmoil. Many of us watching online have a war going on in our hearts right now, Father, and we need your help because of what we're going through. So even, Father, as we pray for them, will you minister to us through your word today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, family, we've been talking about this series called Soul Care, discovering what matters most on the inside. And I don't know about you, but uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Conway started service from a bed to remind us. Um, about soul care and turning anxieties into, oppor into opportunities. And, and Jada reminded us last week about how we can have power under pressure. And what we've been doing throughout this entire series is looking at how can we deal with uh, what's going on on the inside of us. And too many of us neglect the inside for the outside. And um, we've been working through these things, and it's been really causing me to reflect on soul care, and one of the things it reminded me of is, some of you guys know what this is. Um, those on our OCC virtual world um, know about this. This is a set of VR goggles. Now, um, what happened a little while back was um, we were at a family member's house, and my wife put on a pair of these goggles. What these do is these transport you into a virtual world. Now, we could see on the TV what she was seeing in here, except for her, it felt like she was really there. So um, she put these goggles on, and what it did was it transported her under the sea. And she was, in, uh, she was in one of these cages that you're in when you're in shark-infested waters. And, you know, it was real peaceful. We could see. It was like, oh, there goes, there's, there's Nemo right there. And there's Dory. There's Flounder. Um, and all of us, it's all peaceful. Then all of a sudden, she kind of jumped. 
And what happened was inside her headset, the cage rattled that she was in. And then she began to look all around. And then she turned around. And then she started freaking out. Because what happened was it went from Nemo and Dory and Flounder to Jaws. And this shark is coming in, banging into the cage, breaking through the cage. And she thought it felt like she was in a real situation because these goggles had put her into a situation that even though she was in the living room and we were all standing around watching, laughing to her, it felt like she was in a new reality. These goggles had created a virtual reality in her life. It would be real evil if I showed you all the video that we took, but I'm not going to do that because she's here. So, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> what these goggles did was uh, they created a computer-generated environment with scenes and objects, and it covers everything that you see from all peripherals, and it makes you feel like you're there. It makes you feel like you're immersed by your surroundings. And what virtual reality does is it puts us in to where we feel like we're immersed in a game or an environment, and we feel like we are already there even though we're not there. And my fear is, as we talk about soul care, that we come into church and we're in an environment where we feel like we're already there, but we're just having virtual soul care. We're not having real soul care. It made me start to think, what are the different virtual forms of soul care? What are the counterfeits to soul care? And I'm going to walk through some of these in your notes. The first one is, it's called trendy soul care. Trendy soul care, this is a virtual, this is not real soul care. This is, this is where I learn all the catchphrases. I know how to have a conversation about soul care. You know, I, I hear the message. Um, th this is the one that's hardest for me. I know how to talk about rhythms and solitude and prayer and how to look inward. I can talk everything, but I have a hard time actually living it out. I feel like just memorizing these things helps me when I'm not actually doing them. And actually what that does is the exact opposite. That actually makes us numb to real soul care when we learn the talk, but we don't put it into practice. The next one is self-help soul care. The next counterfeit soul care is self-help. That means I just want self-improvement. I just want to feel better on the inside and just give me the checklist so I can do the things. Forget all the supernatural transforming Jesus stuff. Just help me get there and I'll follow the steps. That's like, that's like getting into a life group, a small group with other people, and you get into the group just for what you can get from the group, not for what you can give to the group. It's, I just want some things out of it. The last one is called lean soul care. It's like when you go somewhere and you get a light meal. You're taking something that's really big, but you're shrinking it down to where it's something leaner than it's supposed to be. It's kind of like when Pastor Conway had this big table with a feast. He loves eating the props that are supposed to be props too. Y'all notice that? He loves to go get whatever his favorite fruit of the day is, which was watermelon or grapes, and he's, he's eating one piece. Lean soul care is where you just take one piece off of the feast, and you just, you're, you're happy with that one piece. It's like, you know what, I have a little taste of a better prayer life, and I'm good. I, I'm taking a whole meal and just picking a la carte the piece I want. Lean soul care is where I just take the little piece I want, but I miss out on the whole meal that God has for me. Which one is it for you? I tell on myself, for me, it is definitely trendy. I can talk the walk, but not always walk the walk. And you got to figure out which one of these at your lowest, which one of these when you're studying, which one of these is your tendency so that you know what you have to fight against in order to have real soul care. The title of this message is Becoming Better on the Inside. 
We want to see how we can authentically become better on the inside than the outside. And one of the things we have to wrestle with, and it makes me wonder, what are the reasons, why do we chase after the goals that we chase after? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, we all know what we're chasing after, but why do we chase after those? You know, we chase after fulfillment, achievement, success, momentum in our life. And I'm like, why? Why do we chase that? Why is it the, the better job? Why is it the promotion, the career? Why is it the spouse that I'm dreaming of? Why is it the kids that will act and do what I want them to say? <laughs> um, why is it the recognition? Why is it the breakthrough? I mean, why do we grasp after the things we grasp after? I started to think about that, and I saw there was actually some scientists who did a study on this. They, they did a Harvard study on predicting or why we go after the things we think will make us happy. Studies show that what they found is that almost every action is based on our prediction of the emotional consequence of the action. What that means is it's called effective forecasting. It means that, that what we do is we predict our emotional reaction of the thing we want, so that's what we go after. But what they found is that it's actually the prediction and the anticipation is greater than what we actually receive on the other side of that. That's why people who think that the grass is greener on the other side, when they get to the other side, guess what? Then they see some grass greener over there. Because it's not as good as they expect. You know, the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. Right here. We reach for things only to find out that we have overrated the satisfaction that we'll get when we get that thing. That's why we have to be so careful what we're reaching for, what we focus on, what we aim for. There was actually, this was two scientists, there were two theologians that pondered on this topic. And they kind of said it this way. They said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across the more problems we see. <laughs> that was St. Christopher Wallace and his armor bearer, Sean Combs. Um, they found the same thing, that more money, more problems. We got to be careful what we reach for. It's not always what we think it's going to be like. We overrate the reaction we're going to have when we actually get there. Now, there was a man in the Bible in the Old Testament. I love this guy. He, he, he reached for and he achieved. He got success in almost everything he did. His name is Elijah in the book of 1 Kings 18. This is your homework to go look at everything Elijah did in 1 Kings 18. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. 1 Kings 18, Elijah is a prophet. There's a wicked king named Ahab, and there's all kind of craziness. And all of what I'm about to tell you happens in that one chapter. Number one, Elijah calls out all of the idol-worshiping prophets, 400-plus prophets, and he says, I want to have a throwdown with you, and we're going to see whose God is the real God. So we're both going to get an idol, we're both going to get a, a, a sacrifice, and we're going to call out to our gods, and the one who rains down fire is the real God. They begin to cry out, no fire. Elijah cries out, all of a sudden fire comes down from heaven and burns up the sacrifice. He cries out to God and fire comes down. All of the other prophets are killed. A little bit later, um, Elijah is praying for rain. This is significant because in chapters earlier, years before, he had prayed that the rain would stop. 
And when Elijah prayed that it would stop raining, guess what? The rain, just like you, you and I turn off the water in a shower, it stopped. And then in this chapter, he says, God, let it start to rain again. And it rains years later. He cries out to God, fire happens. He cries out to God, rain comes down. And then he tells the wicked king, Ahab, they're on the mountain, Mount Carmel. He says, king, you need to get out of here because the storm's coming, the rain's coming. The king saddles up his chariots, takes off down the hill. And while he's going down, the spirit of the Lord supernaturally comes on Elijah and he takes off running. And the Bible says that he ran so fast, he outran the chariots and beat them to the bottom of the hill. He outran the king's escalade. He is rolling. So he experienced fire from heaven, rain coming down, the wind as he ran and outran a chariot. He experienced it all. Ultimate success. Ultimate achievement. Hashtag God's favor. Everything's good. Except what we learn with Elijah is as good as everything is out there, it's not good in here. And some of us know what it's like to achieve our goals and not be right and here, and what you'll see on your notes on the top left is that busy lives can bury our issues. We can build our lives and bury our souls all at the same time. We can achieve everything and then get to everything and be totally empty on the inside. That's what we see with Elijah. He has achieved everything, and then we get to 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read through four verses of the word today. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 through 4, we're going to read. All right. I need everybody. Every campus, join me as we read. Now Ahab told Jezebel. Oh, hold, pause already. I'm sorry. Everybody say Jezebel. Yeah, when she gets involved, <laughs> Ahab's the king, she's the one really running stuff. Elijah has just done everything, and now Jezebel hears about it and gets involved. Now, Ahab had told Jezebel, now let's read, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Next verse. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Pause. Jezebel says, I'm coming to kill you, Elijah. I've seen everything you've done, and by the end of this day, you will be dead or I will be dead. One of us will be dead. I'm coming after you, Elijah. Verse 3. And he was afraid. Pause right there. This is fascinating. Do, do, do you remember I just said he prayed and fire came down? 400 plus prophets. He, he prayed and rain happened. Then when it was time to run, he was faster than Usain Bolt running past a chariot. Now one evil woman's coming after him saying, I'm going to kill you. One person. And this man of God is all of a sudden afraid. Something's not right in here. And arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He left his servant there. He's running with his man, his servant. He's running. They're taking off. And he says, I'm leaving you at Beersheba. What's going on 
is Elijah is running away from God's design for his life. Not only is he running away, he sheds the people that God has to run with him so that he can try to do this alone. Next verse, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. That represents being alone, being apart from God, running in the wrong direction. And he sits under a lone juniper tree. You ever had it where you're going through a rough time and you make your environment match what your emotions are feeling? You're going through a hard time and what you want to do to get through the hard time is how you feel is what you do. So I'm going through a hard time, so I'm going to get off by myself. I'm going to get away from everybody. My best friend who's here to serve me, you get away so that I can go by myself. And what he does is he gets all the way by himself. And then when he gets alone, he says, God, will you end it? This man who saw fire come down, who saw rain come down, who ran faster than anyone's ever run, says, God, will you just take me out? You can be seated. God, will you just take me out right now? You know, one great thing about the Bible is it presents us with people that we can relate with. And we need that because I think um, God, if we think God only uses people with no fear, then all of a sudden we think we're second-class Christians because I'm filled with fear all the time. And if we think that God just uses perfect people, we've totally missed it because we never know that God doesn't use people who aren't fearless. They're just faithful. They don't go forward in the Bible. People in the Bible don't go forward because they don't have fear. They go forward because they have a faith that displaces their fear. They realize that faith is not the absence of fear in my life. Faith is when I have a trust in something stronger and greater in my God that can overpower the fear in my life. It is just an illusion to think God uses perfect people. This helps me in life because I relate to someone like Elijah. I relate to what he's going through in his life and in his situation. I relate to the fact that outward success does not equal inward success in my life. I relate to everything can be perfect on the outside. The car, the house, the family, but on the inside I can be torn and shredded to pieces. That sometimes I just want to say, God, will you just take this pain away? He is at an all-time low, and I know what it's like to have both joy and anxiety. Both achievement and stress all at the same time. It reminds me of um, when uh, we have two daughters, and I have to be careful not to name them. There's somebody on our church staff who said, anytime you talk about your kids when you're preaching, you have to give them money. So I tried to disguise that now so they don't know which one I'm talking about. So um, one of our daughters, but you're going to know, it was our oldest daughter, our firstborn. I can't get around it. Uh, When she was born, I remember the joy we had. And oh my goodness, God has blessed us with a child. And then I remember after a couple days in the hospital, it was time to put her in the car seat for the first time. Put the car seat in the car just like we had practiced. 
And then as I got in the car to prepare to drive, I'll never forget the fear and anxiety I had. Like I was driving with the most precious cargo in the world. I was scared to death. Nobody come anywhere near me. I'm driving two lanes away from everyone. I have both joy and anxiety and pressure. Then we get home, and it's like we get home, and and all of a sudden there's no more nurses, there's no more doctors, and our joy is still there, but it's like we're home with a baby, and it's like I've never done this before. (laughs) Like I don't want to mess something up. Um, I don't want to drop, you know, I don't. There's all this stress. So I've got joy and excitement, but stress and anxiety. And Elijah has joy and excitement, a different kind of stress and anxiety, but it's very real. And what it causes him to do is it causes him to run into isolation. Causes him to run to a lone juniper tree all by himself. And when he gets there, he has a pity party. And there's some friends that show up at a pity party. Praise the Lord. I don't know what your pity party looks like. When you get down and low, what do you turn to? For me, I can eat a whole sleeve of Chips Ahoy in one night. I'm not proud of it, but I own it. What is it for you? Maybe it's a tub of Bluebell ice cream. We've got a few Bluebell witnesses. The bigger question is, what is it that you turn to to take the pain away when things aren't going right? What is that little thing that you go to? Maybe it's not a food. Maybe it's a person. Maybe you have a person that you know that you can go to and they will help make everything feel right. Maybe it's something you think about or ponder on, but what is it that you do? Where is your lone juniper tree? Because when you go there, there's a pity party waiting for you, and there's three things we find under stress at the pity party. The first one right here you'll see in your notes is isolation. When we come under stress and when we're frustrated, when things aren't right, our first tendency is to isolate. And every time we look in the Bible, there is never spiritual transformation that happens alone. It always happens in the context of community and others. And Elijah, the first thing he did was get rid of everyone else because the devil wants to get us by ourselves so that he can begin to work on us. We go so hard for life groups because we know That life change happens in the context of community where I can be real about what's really going on inside of me. And I don't have to be real with only myself. Isolation happens. After isolation, the next one is exaggeration. He begins to say, I'm no better than any of my fathers. He begins to exaggerate. And some of us, we know that when we get into a hard place, we begin to exaggerate. We think of the worst case scenario of how this could happen in our lives oh my goodness, this could turn out this way or, or we get so stressed out that we physically actually begin to have symptoms of stress and pain in our lives because we exaggerate and we plan and we, we figure out how bad it can actually go. And the last one, isolation, exaggeration, the last one is desperation. And at the very bottom of it, we see Elijah say, God, will you just end it? Will you just end my life because I don't want to do this? And isn't Elijah just like all of us? We get to the end sometimes and say, God, will you just ease my pain? We get to a low point. We get to the solitary juniper tree. And we're frustrated and we're at our lowest. The good news for us is that God wants to work in our most broken places. 
The good news is that when we're at our lowest, God is right there in our lowest point. The challenge, though, for you and for me is that we spend crazy amounts of energy trying to get out of our lowest point by ourselves. We will work, we will try, we will put all this effort in because we think God does not love me at my lowest. Pastor Conway talked about this in the very first message in this series. When we're at our lowest, what is our view of God? And most of us think when we're at our worst that God is at his farthest away. So what we do is we say, I need to get out of this worst situation by myself. I need to pull up my bootstraps. I need to get it together. Once I get it together, then God will be ready to meet with me. And God says, knucklehead, I want to meet with you right here, right now. And the hard part for us is saying, God, I realize you love me at my worst. God, will you come be with me right now? I hate this situation, God. I've messed up again. God, here I am right now. God, I don't know how to get out of this myself, but God, will you help me right here? That is where God wants to meet us. And we try to get out. We have negative self-talk. We start telling ourselves things like, uh, man, I, should, I, should, I should have a better job by now. I should be getting paid by now. I should have my degree by now. I should have my life together by now. I should have a spouse by now. I should be done with this struggle by now. I shouldn't have to worry about this sin by now. I shouldn't do any of these things. But God, here I am. And we think of this better place we should be in for God to meet us, and he wants to meet us right here, right now. You see, God is like a good doctor. You see, when illness infects someone, the doctor does not hate the person or despise the person with the illness. He despises the illness that's in the person. And the doctor does everything he can to get the illness out of the person because of how much he loves the person. God says that we're all infected with sin. And God is not saying that I despise you. I despise the sin in you. And I want to do everything I can to help get the sin out of you so that I can love you and you can realize just how much I love you right where you're at. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran from God. And what was the first thing God said? Where are you? When Peter messed up and messed up and messed up, Jesus was always right there saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. When Thomas doubted and said, I don't believe it's you, Jesus, Jesus said, well, I want you to experience me right here. Jesus compares God to the father of the prodigal son who waits for us when we're at our lowest. The good news for you and for me is that God doesn't love us because we're good. God loves us because he's good. God doesn't love me because of my circumstance. God loves me because of an eternal choice he made to love me no matter what. God loves us because he's good and he wants to be with us right in our brokenness. And just like for Elijah, just like for us, it's a process. That's where we pick up in verse 5. So remember, Elijah has just said, Jesus, he says, God end it all. Then in verse 5, he says, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said, arise and eat. Next verse. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he went to sleep again. Verse 7, 
The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Here's what happens. Remember, he had just said, God, my prayer is that you will end my life right now. To which God says, Get up and eat. My prayer is, God, will you end my life? The answer is, Arise and eat. Here's some bread and water. Fascinating. Bread represents the word of God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Water in the Bible represents the spirit. I am putting the word, Jesus, here for you and the spirit to walk with you. I've given you nourishment for the journey you need, not once but twice. God says, get up and eat. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if you, if you look over on the back of your notes, this is the easiest sermon you've ever heard. Two steps to soul care. This is step number one. Number one, right here in this passage, is get up and eat. Get up and eat. Can you just tell two people, eat something? Look at your neighbor, tell them to eat something. It's almost lunchtime. God loves to put food in our path. You see, we want God to take away the fear. God says, I've got some nourishment for you. God, get rid of this fear. God says, here's some food. He says, get up and eat and strengthen yourself with the food that I have just provided you. You see, we receive God's power when we consume God's promise. It's not because we don't have faith. It's because we aren't feeding the faith that we already have. God says, get up and eat. What I want you to do is to feed your faith. And the more you feed your faith the bigger your faith will be and then it will become bigger than the fear in your life right now. So we've got to feed our faith and if we feed our faith, it will get larger. But the problem is we don't always eat what God serves up. Can you believe it? We've got the entire Bible, the entire Bible on this device, every language, every version. But sometimes we have a problem eating what God serves up. You know what, you can have devotions, whatever you want sent to you, emailed on a weekly, daily, whatever you want. It'll drop in your inbox a devotion you can read every single week. You pick the Bible website, you'll find it. You can log on and, and watch Bible study, watch church, watch morning prayer. The problem is we don't always eat the food God is providing. And if we don't feed our faith, how can we expect God to take away our fears? You see, if we feed our faith, our fears won't stand a chance. And if you find yourself in a wilderness, if you find yourself alone and under a tree, know that you're not alone. Know that God is saying, it's time to get up and eat. It's time to feed your faith because God still has a plan for you. Look at verse 9. After he gets up and eat, he leaves the tree. And then in verse 9, it says, then he came there to a cave. Are you kidding me? You went from a tree to a cave? And lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Every step of the way, notice God's talking to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you know, it, it, it makes all the difference in how you say something. One of my favorites is the two-word phrase, you good. Some of, some of you guys know that you good can mean a whole lot of stuff. Like, it literally mean, can mean, are you good? But you good can also mean, like, thank you. Um, you good. Um, you good can mean, do you have enough money right now? You good? Uh, you good can mean, I need you to stop talking right now. You good? You good? You good can mean, do you want to throw down right now? You good? 
how you say something makes all the difference in the world. Look right here. There's a lot of different ways to say, what are you doing here? First one, we're going to emphasize the word what. Can somebody say what? What? What are you doing here? What? What do you think you're going to accomplish here? Why are you here, Elijah? Why? What? What is your plan? Let's emphasize the word you. Somebody say you. you. What are you doing here? Elijah, out of all people, you've seen fire, you've seen rain, you've run fast. Out of all people, you, why are you here, Elijah? To my brothers and sisters in Christ, why are you here again? You've seen God be faithful over and over throughout your life. Why are you here again? Somebody say here. here. What are you doing here? Out of all places, a cave here. Why are you here? Cave represents darkness. It represents isolation. Out of all the places, why a cave? Because in a cave and in darkness is where the enemy thrives. The enemy can sow all kind of seeds of doubt and lies and exaggeration when you can't see anything. How many of you know that you're more scared of stuff in the dark than in the light? I'm going to give you some proof. How many of you have ever been scared when the dishwasher kicked on in the middle of the night? What was that? What was that? Maybe it's not the dishwasher. Maybe, you know, one time in our house, like, the, the AC kicked on, and it was, you know, it was pushing up against a curtain up against a wall, and it was making this scratching sound, and my wife was like, what's that? What's that? You better get up and do something. I'm like, what am I going to get up and do? I hear something. A door creaked. Get up and do something. I'm like, what, what am I doing? Because in the dark, we are more scared of stuff than we are in the light. What are you doing here in the dark, in the cave? The dark will expose us. And what he realized was, although he could outrun chariots, he could not outrun the health of his soul. And here he is in the dark, exposed to what the enemy wants to tell him. And we allow busyness and pace to mask what's really going on in our heart till we get in the dark place and we're exposed and we run from things and we have masks on and, and what happens is we come over here and we get in the cave and what happens in the cave is it's like, it's like talking to someone in a mirror. Because in the cave, it's just me and God. In the cave, I begin to talk to myself. That's a bad thing. I've gotten rid of everybody, I've gotten rid of God, and in the, the cave, we realize the cave can do two things. The cave can either confine us or refine us. We want it to refine us, but if we stay there too long, the cave will confine us and it will become a prison of my own inner thoughts. I will begin to talk to myself and believe the worst about myself inside the cave. Some of you guys remember in James chapter 1, it says that somebody who's just a hearer and not a doer of the word is like someone who looks at themselves in a mirror. And when they walk away from the mirror, they forget who they even are. And the cave will confuse us. We won't even remember who God's called us to be when we're in the cave. And what Elijah does in the cave is he's talking to himself. And he says, I've done all these great things for you, God, but now I'm alone. I'm here by myself. No one else is around. 
and he believes the lies. And I don't know what lies you tell yourself when it's just you and yourself. And you're talking to yourself in the mirror. The reality for Elijah is he's looking in the mirror and he says he's alone. But there's actually, we find out a few verses later, over 7,000 other followers of God still there that have his back. But because he's alone and isolated himself, he doesn't even know they're there. And when we get in the cave and all we see is ourselves, the devil has a playground with us. And the cave confines us. But it doesn't have to confine us. It can also refine us. So here's how it refines us. I studied this that, um, and some of you know this, that uh, if you take a carbon atom and you put it under 720,000 pounds of pressure per square inch at the right temperature, it will become a diamond. You have 720,000 pounds per square inch at the right temperature, it will become, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Now that little carbon atom, I'm thinking that little, this is how my mind works. That little carbon atom is probably not saying, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to be a diamond one day. It's probably not talking about how amazing this is. Like, wow, I love that I'm under pressure. I love that this is so tight under here. I love that I'm hidden. I love that no one can see me. I love that I'm under the dirt. I love all this pressure on top of me. I'm loving this right now. Thank you, Jesus, for the pressure. We've got someone on my team. I love him to death. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But no matter how much pressure you put on this person, he always says, I'm grateful. I'm like, what are you grateful for? Thank you for the opportunity. I'm like, come on, man. Are you the carbon atom? It's like he knows what's being produced, so he's speaking faith into that situation. He's like, God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. I'm grateful for everything in my life right now because I know the pressure is refining me. Because when I'm under pressure, it might feel like I'm hidden. It might feel like it's weighing me down. It feels like no one can see me. Even worse, when I'm under pressure and in the cave, it feels like even God can't see me. But I want to propose something to you today, that there are some things that can only happen under pressure. Now, I'm not saying God brings the cave to your life, but what I am saying is that somehow God can cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So I don't know why the cave is there, but God can work something in that cave. And the, the pressure can refine you if you allow it to. You might not see the diamond in you, but God still sees the diamond in you, even under the pressure. And this is where I need your help a little bit today, because I wonder if I've got someone in here who's been through some pressure in their life. Someone who's been through some stuff. Someone who can testify to the day, today to the pressure you've been through. Is there somebody that can say, I went through some stuff, and on the other end of that, I was able to worship like I never worshiped before. Is there somebody that can say, I went through some pressure, and after the pressure, my faith was stronger than it ever was before? Is there somebody that can say, I came through pressure, and God is closer than he ever was before? You see, pressure can either confine you or refine you, and there's some things that only pressure can bring out of us. God wants to refine us in the pressure. Can somebody say pressure? pressure. Now, verse 11 and 12, and then we're going to get ready to land. So he said, this is God speaking. This is, remember, Elijah's in the cave. God says, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Um, I'll, just go ahead and, I'll just go ahead and tell you the ending. Um, there's two parts to this. Get up and eat, 
And number two is go out and stand up. When you're at your lowest, you, you get up and eat. You feed your faith. And number two, go out and stand up. You position yourself to listen to God. Look at what happens. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Next verse. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. You know, that made me think, because it says there, a gentle blowing, and in some verses it says a gentle whisper. You see, the problem is when we're going through something, I don't know if it's just me, but I want God to shout the answer. God, I need your help. Will you shout to me? God, tell me what to do. I need to see, I need to see wind blowing. I need to see written in the sky. I need a text message. God, I need you to make it so clear that I can see and know that it's you. And we want God to show up in something crazy loud to tell us what he wants us to do. This made me start to wonder, why does he show up in a gentle whisper? says that he showed up and, and wind came through. But he wasn't in the wind. Like, why would you not be in the wind? Maybe it's because Elijah's already seen crazy wind. Then it says, an earthquake happened. The ground shook. Like, God, if, if anything you were going to show me, you showing up, you would do it in something spectacular like an earthquake. Why were you not in the earthquake? Then it says that fire came. Like, God, have you ever seen two, somebody try to rub two sticks together and make fire? You know how hard it is to make? Have you ever seen Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway making fire? Like, it is hard, God. I would think that when fire comes down, that would be you, God. That's how you showed up before, but it says God was in none of those things. It says he was in a gentle whisper. Why was God in the whisper? He was in the whisper because he wanted Elijah to know he was close. He wanted Elijah to know I'm right here next to you. You see, the enemy shouts lies. God whispers truth. The enemy shouts all kind of foolishness to us. God says, I whisper truth to you. God says, I'm not going to take away or I'm not going to overpower your fears by shouting louder. I'm not going to overpower your fears by showing off. I'm going to overpower your fears by calling you closer. God says, I want to be right there and I want you to know I'm right here in the cave with you. I'm close. I'm whispering. We've got to let God's presence come in. We've got to be willing, like when we sang that song, Christ Alone, Cornerstone at the beginning of service. Weak made strong in the Savior's arms. Knowing that God whispers and draws us in. And he says, I don't have to be in the crazy. I have to be in the nearness. I want to be close to you. I want to be in your presence. And on your notes right here on the top right on the back, it says a gentle whisper equal to gigantic shift. Let me tell you what happened when God whispered. 
God whispers and he actually says the same thing again. Elijah, what are you doing here? And then he begins to tell him through a whisper his direction, where to go next, how to get back on the path for God. He begins to tell him his destiny. He tells him who's going to take over after him and how to pass the baton. He tells him through the whisper discernment and how to hear from me from here on out. It's through your nearness to me. This gentle whisper is a gigantic shift. And the gentle whisper saying, come here closer. Because what do we do with a message like this? There's only two things we do when we're at our lowest. It sounds so simple. Get up and eat. Go out and stand up. See, the thing with soul care is we can't just talk about it. We have to be about it. See, the difference is when you've got kids studying for a test, when they study for a test, here's what they do. When you and I study for a test, we're memorizing answers so that when a test comes, we can recite and say the right things. See, in today's world, we think if I can just say and think the right things over and over enough, that'll equal change inside of me, and that does not. That is just the beginning of the process. You see, we can't just say the right things and memorize. We have to live the right things. Faith and action work together. You see, it's not taking a test. Here's what it's like. Um, one of my daughters played the trumpet for four years or so, and it's not like taking a test. It's like learning to play an instrument. You see, you study that instrument, but then you have to come home and practice, praise the Lord, practicing a trumpet. For the first year, guess what? It sounded like an animal was dying in our house every night. <laughs> what am I telling you? When you start to practice this, it can feel awkward. It might not be just right. It might not be like everyone else. Who cares? Put it into practice. Learn it and practice it. Learn it and practice it. And after years of time, she went from sounding like she was killing an animal to being in the first chair trumpet player. Why? Because she dedicated years of practice. So what I'm telling you and I'm telling myself is we have to put it into practice. When you find yourself, and that might be you right now, at your lowest, two things. God says, get up and eat. Feed your faith. And he says, go out and stand up. Get where you can hear from me.